Amen. Well, let's have a seat, and we've just greatly enjoyed the worship this morning, and tonight we're going to be having uh, another worship service. Uh, it'll be different and uh, be a little bit more, um, uh, I guess, blended in some senses for about 15 or 20 minutes. We're going to be then going to the Lord in prayer over the persecuted church, over the prodigals, uh, over the election that's coming up, and, of course, the persecuted um, church and, uh, and um, things of that nature as well. And so with that, I want us to take our Bibles. I want us to open it up. And by the way, as you open up your Bibles to Psalm 33, keep in mind that Jeremy Good is beginning his ministry out on our East Campus this morning. Uh, he's out there and, um, and finishing up uh, his sermon, finishing up the services even as we speak. And so let's keep him in mind in prayer as well. Let's take our Bible again, turn to Psalm 33 as you open up this, the Word of God. Psalm 33, love the Psalms, love this passage as well. And, you know, with the election coming up, and I'll be preaching, been asking questions. Uh, we've been in a 10 or 12-week series of messages on asking questions. You ask the questions, we're answering the questions as best as uh, we can. And um, uh, I'm going to be talking about politics and the Christian this morning because we do have an election coming up. Many of you have already voted. I know that. But many of you have not. And, but I do pray that all of us plan to vote because that, that is a, a right that's given to us by the American Constitution, and we need to exercise that right. And I know that there's going to be some, uh, there's going to be a lot of concern, no matter who gets elected. And so the appropriate message next week, I'll be finishing up this series entitled, When is Jesus Coming Back Again? Because I know that that's what you're going to want to know, no matter who wins the election, right? And so we're going to be talking about that next week and finishing up the series. But I want us to take the Bible, Psalm 33. I'm reminded of a story that I saw on the news a couple of years ago. And this candidate that was uh, running for Congress out west was uh, outvoted in the primary because the, his opponent was an evangelical Christian, and he claimed that the reason he lost is because the Christians came to the voting booth and took their religion with them into the voting booth. And he said that's unconstitutional, and he's thinking about suing. And so is it? I mean, you think about the separation of church and state, which, by the way, was not even an issue as we interpret today until the 1940s. But as we look at this, where do we fit into this political system? What should we do? Because as much as we love our nation today, we need to realize it looks a lot different than it did when we first formed the Union. In fact, the founders of our Constitution and the founders of our nation had these kind of quotes about God. Uh, John Quincy Adams, who was the fourth president of the United States, said, the highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected us with the bond principles of civil government and the principles of Christianity together. It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God in the Bible, said George Washington, the first president of the United States. Now, I know that a lot of you maybe have not taken, you know, U.S. history, but one of the characters in that U.S. history, one of the heroes of the Revolutionary War was a fellow by the name of Patrick Henry, who said, give me liberty or give me death, and that was kind of the, the, the mantra and, and uh, you know, the slogan of the American Revolution. He also said this, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that the great, this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not by religion, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our founding fathers knew 
where God was in all this equation. And we are founded upon the Christian principles of the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we are no longer there. Our American society and our American way of life is really under assault. And because of that, we have great concerns about our country. We have concerns about the racial unrest, and it's really the worst it's been since I can remember since the 1970s. We're worried, we're concerned about ISIS and all the other terrorism groups coming in to harm us in some way. We're concerned about things like abortion, which has been a concern of mine since the 1970s. We're concerned about uh, so high unemployment in our area. We're concerned about $20 trillion of debt in the U.S. and when is all that bubble going to burst? We're concerned about so many things in this life and we're wondering what can we do about it. Proverbs or Psalm 11.3 says this, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, that's a good question. Where do we fit? What are we supposed to do? When the culture says we ought to stay out of it, when the culture says you can't bring your, your Christianity into the voting booth, which is really totally against everything about the Bible and about Christianity. Because when Jesus comes into your life, he's supposed to become the master and the Lord of your life and my life. And so if that's true, then it's going to affect the way I operate my family and, and of course, in my home. It's going to affect how I operate on the job. It's going to affect how I vote as well. And any involvement you may have in politics because you're taking Jesus everywhere you go. And that's probably true to a lesser extent about everybody. If you're an atheist, you take that into the voting booth. If you are a person that is a business owner and, and that is your idol of life, for example, if that is your idol, if that is your God, you take that concern into the voting booth. And so how does all this fit? Well, Psalm 33 is a psalm of praise, and it gives us a lot of comfort and gives us a lot of challenges as well. Uh, David is writing this as a praise to God. It's a worship hymn that is sung in church often, or sung in the synagogue. And so, or, or in the temple. And so, we want to break it down in this way. Our comfort, what can we be comforted in? We're, we're an American, and things aren't maybe going the way that the Christian feels like things ought to go. And so, what can we comfort ourselves with? What is our condition, and what is our call to action? What can we do as believers in Christ? So, let's look at this. First of all, our comfort. I want us to begin looking in verse 6. It says, by the word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He's saying, by the word of God, everything was made. It's a creative nature going on here. There, just the fact that things were spoken. He gathers the waters and the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Now, the original Hebrew to this, is it really gives you a picture of what they're talking about here. He says, he's really saying all the oceans of the world, all the seas of the world, all the lakes of the world, all the water of the world, you can take them and God just puts them into a jar, a storehouse. That's, that's literally what it means, a jar. And so God is so big, God is so great that he just takes the oceans and he can put them into a jar as far as he is concerned. Look in verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded it and it stood fast. Again, the creative nature of his voice. But then look in verse 10. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. He, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. 
What is it saying here? God rules over everything. Nature, he rules over creation. He rules over the nations as well. First Chronicles 29, 11 and 12 probably best puts it in this way. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and in the earth. Yours is the dominion. O Lord, you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all, and your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. These verses are saying that God is sovereign. He rules over the universe. And there's nothing that happens that God does not allow. Now, we can, we can split it up. And in the Greek thought, in the New Testament thought, <clears throat> there's, a permit, there's a perfect will of God, and that is all perfection, no sin at all. And there's the permissive will of God. Remember what we talked about in Romans 1 last week, where it says God gave them over. God says, okay, if you want the freedom, if you want the power over your own life, I'm going to give that to you. That's not God's perfect will. It's his permissive will. Much of the suffering, the sufferings of this world are not God's perfect will. They're his permissive will because he's trying to accomplish something or they're simply because of sin in the world. And that's another message altogether that I've that I've preached before. But he's saying here, God is sovereign. He rules over all things. How does he do that? How does how is all that applied? He says, in the power and might. First Chronicles 29, 12. His power, his power has, has been the attribute that has caused his sovereignty to rule in our lives. The Bible says he's over the nations. The Bible says he's over history. The Bible says he's over kingdoms. Listen to these verse, uh, verses. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants, wherever he wishes. John 19, Pilate said to Jesus, you do not speak, you do, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it has been given you from above. God has rulership over everything. Now, I've, I've seen this from your notes, from your Facebook, all this kind of, you know, God's sovereign over everything. But let me clear something up very, very carefully here. And that is, just because God is ruler over everything does not mean everything's going to be okay. It doesn't mean that in our eyes, things are going to work out like we want them to work out because God is sovereign over everything. The Roman Empire has fallen in the past. The Greek Empire fell as well. I'm not sure. I'm, I believe that no, no nation can survive when they push God out of the scene. No society can survive without God. But here we find that God is sovereign over everything. It does not mean that he's automatically going to bless America. And so what is our condition? Where do we find ourselves? I want us to look in verse 12, or in verse 10. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. We have our own plan, and God just frustrates it. Don't you feel frustrated? Don't you feel frustrated with your own plans? Man, I feel frustrated sometimes with church plans. I can't imagine what the government feels like when having to give and take and getting so many people involved, so many people to please. You can wonder the frustration of it all. Then he says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Obviously, it's talking here about Israel. 
the nation of Israel. But the first part of that verse applies to everyone. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. What's happened? When 52 out of 55 framers of our Constitution were believers, one French diplomat said in 1830, there is no country in the world where the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. That was in 1830. What happened? Well, it all goes back to Adam. Adam sinned against God. Adam and Eve chose to go their own way. Why? We've talked about that before. They wanted their freedom. They wanted power in their own life. And the seeking of power has become prevalent in every society since that time. The Bible says it this way. Therefore, just as one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all have sinned. We inherited now that sin nature, that seed of sin within our life, and that seed of sin says, I want to be free. I don't want rules over my life. I want to find a way to be free. I want to have the power of my own life, and really, I want power over everyone else's life as well. And so we come to the place in our life where we look at the two presidential candidates we have. And I know I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings here, but I'm just going to tell you what I'm hearing on the news. I'm going to tell you what I've been hearing on the news for the last two months, and that is two-thirds of America are going to go to the voting booth this, uh, when they vote, if those who are voting, two-thirds of them are voting against a candidate rather than for a candidate. And why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons. But one of the things is the character issue and the morality and the fact that it is is kind of becoming off the table. Now, I know that I'm going to offend some of you by saying that, that you can't vote character. I believe, I've, I believe in voting character. Character, it, it's just all about it because unless you have the character, you don't know whether a candidate's going to lie to you or not or just promise you something that has absolutely nothing to do with what they're going to do. I understand that. But let me give you this illustration. Suppose your, one of your main things was to lower taxes. May not be, just an example, Okay. And, and you know, as you look at both candidates, both of them want to raise taxes. That's not true either. Again, just a hypothetical thing. Well, if both want to raise taxes and you believe in lowering taxes, then the tax issue then becomes off the table. You understand what I'm saying, right? Could be anything. It could be the abortion issue. It could be uh, the marriage issue. It, it could be anything. But if both candidates agree on something, then that becomes kind of off the table. You have to vote on other criteria. Well, I want to share with you that the character issue has to be off the table because neither one of these candidates have shown that they have a moral center in life. Amen. They just don't. Now, you say, well, look, this candidate's a lot better than this candidate. This candidate's a lot better than this one. And that's the only argument I've heard on this. Well, uh, Donald Trump's done this. And somebody says, well, yeah, but Hillary's done this. And somebody says, well, Hillary's done this, yeah, but Donald Trump's done this. And so it goes back and forth and back and forth. No one can really justify what they're doing and how they've lived their life. And so you look at character and you wonder what has happened to America today. Sin has happened to America. God has given us over. I believe that. We can look at these two candidates, and though they're very, very different in their platforms and very, very different in their personality and, and, and their, their temperament and everything like that. They're, they're different. They are nevertheless mirror images of what many, 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 in fact, probably the majority of America has become. 
God has given us over. We can look at this, and, the, and, and we look at politicians today, and you wonder, and I'm not speaking to all of them. I know some very good ones. But you wonder why in the world that they keep getting reelected and reelected and do absolutely nothing that they promised. Because what they want to do is not change anything or be better for anything. They've gotten into a, a, a thing where I want the power. I enjoy being in Congress. I enjoy being in the Senate. That's where I want to be. I want the power in our life. Now, let me share with you an illustration, I think, that is extreme, but nevertheless maybe gets the point across. Mike Wallace, in six, on 60 Minutes years ago, interviewed a man who was in the Holocaust. He was in one of the gas chamber prisons, and he was um, Auschwitz, and he was, had just testified against Adolf Eichmann in his trial, one of the biggest monsters in World War II. Eichmann, by the way, said, I broke no laws, and he didn't. Not one German law did he break. But he said to the man, he said, Denor was his name, he said, Mr. Denor, I noticed that when you came in and sat down, when you took a good look at Adolf Eichmann, you began to cry. Weep almost uncontrollably, he said. Was that because you remember the horrors of Auschwitz? And he said, no. Let me quote. He says, no, when I looked at him, I was afraid of myself. I saw I was capable of doing this. I was just like him. Wallace turns to the camera, and he says, was Eichmann a monster, a madman, or something even more terrifying? Was he normal? What's happened? To America is the same thing that happens to every other nation. Man gets involved. And man is the sinner at heart. And when you give the man the power, he wants more, he wants more, he wants to keep what he has. And Nietzsche was right. We are motivated by one thing, power in our life. And that is true, unless it's at, certainly unless the cross comes into place, unless Jesus takes over our life. So the chance to choose someone of character and please get me right when I say this, it's kind of off the table. You have to go to other criteria. Notice in this quest for power, it began with Eden, and now it continues with us. I mean, even in, in uh, the movies about secret agents, and there's always a villain that wants to want, what does he want to do? What does he want to do? Take over the world. Power. Why do you think people spend millions and millions of dollars on getting elected to an office that only pays a fraction of what they're spending. They're not in this for the money. They're in it for the power. I want the power, and that is the trait of the human being. What's happened? What, what happened to all this? Because there's something within us that says it's not right. It's just not right. It's like the, the man who decides he wants to be a policeman, but he can't qualify. And so he dresses up like a policeman. He gets the uniform, and he even gets a car and paints it up, puts a light on the top of it, and he looks in every bit, inside and outside the car. He's got the bulletproof vest on. He's got everything. He walks around like a policeman. 
And he's got the power of policemen. He's got the gun on his side and the, and, and the, and the, the stick in his, in his holster. And, and he looks the part. People come up to him with maybe respect, and they said, you know, can you help me here? Yes, I can help you. But in his mind, he's always nervous. Who's going to find out? And one day, he's sitting there in the coffee shop playing the part. And another policeman walks in and has the same uniform with the same patches in the same city that he is. He has a uniform for and he's walking up to him, and he knows he's going to have to answer questions that he doesn't have an answer for. That is the plight of man. Yes, I want the power, I want the, but boy, you know, if I've got the power, I'm nervous. I'm going to be caught. I'm going to be caught because I'm not that good with the whole thing. So what has happened? Some people said, well, after World War II, we were just kind of on a lark. Everybody was buying homes. Everybody had the great sign of victory because we did have a great victory. And people had died, but now, boy, there's a, there's a new wave, a new life. And that opened up the door for the rebellious 60s and et cetera. Part of that's true, but that go, it goes back further than that. And I, I preached a message on this a time or two, so I'm not going to uh, get to it in great detail. Let me just go over it real quickly. Back in the 1700s, late 1700s, there was a philosopher by the name of Jean-Jacques Rousseau who said, man, is basically good. Now, this is the same man who fathered five different children, insisted that different girlfriends place them on the steps of the asylum, which was the orphanage back then, because crying babies interrupted his, his train of thought. But he said, man, is basically good. Doesn't need laws. Make your own laws. Just do your own thing. Because man is basically good. Still believe today. George Hegel came along and piggybacked on that. He said, well, what it is, you have the thesis and the antithesis. And what I mean by that is everybody believes the same thing, basically. Here's societal beliefs, and that's what determines truth, is whatever society believes. Now, society believes this, and somebody, <clears throat> some radical, excuse me, some radical comes along and says, <clears throat> no, I've got something new to believe. Way over here, no, we, we're not, we're not going to believe that. Legalized marijuana back in the 60s and 70s, we're, we're not going to do anything like that. Or we're not going to have that kind of stuff on our television. I remember a, a time, and uh, okay, it was the reruns of I Love Lucy. Anybody remember those? Everybody, anybody ever watched the reruns of I Love Lucy? Okay. If you notice, if you ever go back to their bedroom, there are two single beds, okay? And Dick Van Dyke's show, if you watch the reruns, same thing, two different beds. Now, uh, now let me just say that um, Lucy and Desi were actually married, but it was unacceptable on television to put two people in the same bed, even if they were married. And so they separated them. By the, by the time mid-60s come along, they said, well, we're going to put them in the, in the same bed. How'd they do that? Well, somebody came along with the radical whole thing about pornography in the movie theaters, Happened in the 60s, big time. And they said, we, we need to go here. No, we, we, that's immoral. We're not going there, but we'll just go here. A new belief comes along, and, oh, we can't go there, but we'll just go here. And another one comes along, oh, we'll just go here. And it keeps slipping further and further to my left, if you turn around, to your left. It keeps going to the left. It keeps going toward the sin. 
And we, we look at it, and he called it the thesis and antithesis, and then you have a new synthesis. You have a new belief, and that new belief, wherever it is, is the new belief of culture, and that becomes the new truth. Where did it come from? Well, let me go on. Darwin comes along with evolution, says man is a human animal, and somebody says, well, I believe in theistic evolution, where God just did it. You missed the point. The whole idea of evolution was to disprove God, to say, I don't need God. That's the reason the atheists grab hold of it so easily. We need an answer from where did man, where did life really come from? And so they grabbed hold of that. It has nothing to do with anything else because it doesn't even prove the origin of man, only the evolution of man after he's been created, after life has been created. And then John Dewey comes along and, and really adapts evolution in the 20s. The new liberal arts education, humanism. Man is his own God. You are the God of your own life. You need to believe in who? Yourself. Exactly. Just believe in yourself. Still prevalent today. And then we have a secular society that says, uh, secular means now. I have to have everything now. I have to have success now. If I don't have success now, I've wasted all of my eternity because there's nothing in the afterlife. It's only in the now. And so if I mess up in some way, then my life's over. Why do you think we have so much discouragement and depression today? Because everything's thrown into this basket. Everything's thrown into this life. It's a secular life. And most of the time, things will not, outside of Christ, things will not work out just right for you or me. And so depression and discouragement comes in because it's all about the now. So what can we do with all this? What can we do with a society that says, I don't want the evangel. I don't want to live beside an evangelical Christian. What do we do with a society that says, I don't want you in the voting booth? What do we do in a society where presidential candidates or senator, can, sen, uh, senator and Congress candidates want us to do something to, 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 uh, to marginalize us in the same, some way? What do we do? Let me give you four things, and we're going to close real quickly. You've got to personalize the truth. It has to do with the truth. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their, heal their land. If my people. See, revival can't come. You can't revive something that's not alive. And a person is only alive spiritually if they've received Christ. So it's up to the church. First Peter 4 tells us, he says, judgment must begin. Repentance must begin in the house of God. And so what about us? What about us? Let me ask you. If all of America depended upon your dedication to the Lord, what kind of shape, what kind of hope would we have? Because it says right here in verse, um, we look in verse 13. The Lord looks from heaven and sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions the heart of them all. He who understands all their works, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope of victory. You're a false hope for victory. The things that God has made for you is a false hope for victory. Nor does it deliver anyone from his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who hope for his loving kindness. That's what we need. We need a group of people that have an awesomeness, feel an awesomeness of God 
and we are the hope of America. We're the salt of the earth. Now, here's the thing. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Now, uh, I've heard that about 20% of America goes to church on any one given Sunday morning. So right now, 20% of America, they say, is in church. I don't much believe that. I don't think it's that high. But we'll say it is. 20%, 20 pounds of salt, 100 pounds of meat. If you take 100 pounds of ground beef, pour 20 pounds of salt into the ground beef, it is going to be so salty you can't eat it. It's going to be overwhelmed with salt. But we don't find America being overwhelmed with the salt. And so what about us? I was asking, we were asked, and I didn't ask the question. I thought it was appropriate, though. We all did. I was very surprised about the reaction of the pastors when the question was asked. What do we do, gentlemen? How do we disciple people that we're called to disciple when they don't even show up to church? How can we do that? How can we disciple without them showing up? The answer was you can't because when people were discipled by Jesus, they followed Jesus. And the extent that they followed Jesus is how much they grew with Jesus. And we have typical church all across America today. Everybody in that room understood exactly what they were saying. One guy said, he said, yeah, I had a 21-week uh, series on messages, and to most people that was seven weeks because that's how much they showed up. And so in America today, we are concerned about pleasure, maybe concerned about power, maybe concerned about other things in life. But are we concerned about being the people of God that would call upon the name of the Lord with a right relationship with God? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? What kind of investment are you making, are we making in the world today? You have to personalize, personalize the truth. Live as though you really want to make a difference. And you can't do that unless you're discipled. And we want to do that. Secondly, you've got to participate in the truth. You've got to vote. You really do need to vote. And let me say this. I, I need to put a little caveat in here a little bit. Because I know that there are people here that are not going to vote for any candidate. They're going to vote either blank or write somebody's name in. Um, and if you want to do that, I want you to let you know that that is your prerogative to do. You see, in our nation, we have the greatest nation in the world. One of the reasons we have the greatest nation in the world because we're so generous. The Bible says the great nations are the ones that are generous. All right? But we're also a great nation because we have freedoms. And one of the freedoms we have is to go down to the voting polls and vote our personal convictions, and really no one can say anything about that. But we do. Oh, if you vote for this candidate, how can you call yourself a Christian? If you vote for this one, how can you ever preach character to your children again? If you don't vote at all, it's, a, it's, it's one for the, for the most evil one. And somebody says, well, I don't vote for you know, the, just the lesser of the two evils. Well, for, for me, I always vote the lesser evil. I always vote for less evil. However, if you don't, that really is your prerogative. Please hear me what I'm saying. We need to be able to vote without somebody else on our heels judging us. We're the church. You have a right to vote. In fact, you have a right to vote a secret ballot if you so desire. And no one should do anything but be as supportive as they can of your own personal convictions. You say, well, you think everybody's right. No, I think anybody who doesn't vote like me is wrong. <laughs> but you have a right to be wrong. 
You do. You, and I'm not saying that necessarily. But I am saying you, you have a right to be wrong, and, I, and so do I. But we need to vote. Vote our convictions. Well, character's off the table, so we're talking about things like abortion. I, I don't vote for anyone that believes in abortion. I haven't since 1976, and I won't again. You say, well, you know, you know, there's ministers that disagree with you. I know they do, and I know it's me, but I just don't see, and I, I know that people have been through that, and maybe you have had an abortion, and you know, know that God forgives that too in every sin. I just, I just don't know how God's going to bless a nation when we don't protect the most innocent people that we have. But you got abortion, you have freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, laws that reflect morality, economics. People need jobs. Maybe that's your thing. Vote the platforms of the candidate. Always vote for less evil, if possible. And then thirdly, pray for the truth. If my people who are called by my name, we're going we're gonna to pray about it tonight. Look in verse 22. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us. This is a prayer. According as we have hoped in you. Pray for our nation. We're going to do that tonight. And number four, proclaim the truth. Verse 19, deliver their souls from death. How do you do that? You do that by the gospel. You see, our, our power, if you want to talk about power, our greatest power is not in the ballot box, but it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What would have happened if someone had maybe talked to Donald Trump when he was young, just shared the gospel with him? What a difference that may have made. What if someone would have shared with Hillary Clinton the gospel, the real gospel, and God would have drawn her, and she would have made a decision then. What would have happened in their life if Christ was really the Lord of what was going on? I, I share this story with you, and I have a very good friend of, a friend of mine back when I was in seminary. We went to seminary together. We worked together, in fact. His name was Mike, and he shared this story in his church. Pretty well-known story about a young man who was hated, it seemed like, by anybody, rejected, bullied in school, came to church there in Fort Worth, Texas, was not loved there, was not ministered to, was not shared with, a Baptist church, as a matter of fact, you know, not picking on anybody, but an evangelical church, I should say. And he told this story in the church, and of course, this young man, as he told the story, got into the military, learned one skill, and that's how to shoot a rifle, got married, finally found somebody that loved him, but then she left him too because she just couldn't stand him. He comes to America, goes up into a high-rise building in Dallas, Texas in 1963 and sends a shell, a bullet, into the head of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Lee Harvey Oswald, one of the most rejected men of our day. He told that story. Two ladies in the church came up to him afterwards and in tears they said we were the church that Lee Harvey Oswald came to when he was a boy and one of them said yes and I can remember being glad when he never came back what a difference our whole whole world would have been different 
if somebody would have sat down with him and said, Lee, I want to share with you about the greatest person and the greatest hope. I want to share with you about someone who really, really does love you. The greatest power we have is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what about you today? Have you embraced that kind of power? Have you embraced that relationship with him? We need people here today praying for our nation, praying that you would make a difference and say to God, God, what, what can I do to personalize the truth? What can I do to grow in Christ? What can I do to make a difference in someone's life? How can I learn how to share my faith? But if you're here today and you're thinking, hey, you know, I'm, I'm just here kind of inquiring. I don't know. Then the day needs to be the day that you receive Jesus in your heart. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. And so as we bow our heads and close our eyes, no one looking around the quietness of this moment, I'll ask you to pray this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. It goes like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying there for my sins. I open up the door of my heart, and I ask you to come in. Please forgive me of everything that I've done and make me the person that you want me to be. Help me to follow you in Jesus' name. Now, would you look this way? I want to call your attention to the uh, welcome card that you received just a few moments ago. Now, what I'd like for you to do is um, take this card. You've already filled out the front, I trust, because we, we need that. But on the back, on the upper right-hand corner, it says, My Decision Today. I've decided to surrender my life to Christ and begin a personal relationship with him. If you prayed that prayer with me, I want you to put a little check in that box, okay? And I want you to place it in the offering plate when it's passed, and that'll give us an indication of your decision and help us to help you. And there's other places on here for prayer requests. I want to challenge you today and just say, you know, I'm, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for the election. You can just write down on here, election, and I know you're going to be praying for it. And with that, I'll join you this week, and especially in the next two days, praying for God to do something great and his will to be accomplished in the next couple of days. And so I'll invite you to do that. We have um, a, a special little presentation to do here in just a moment, but I'd like for us to bow our heads and close our eyes. I'd like to have prayer over uh, the offering at this time. Father, thank you so much for all that you've given us. And God, thank you, God, for the opportunity to live in a country like this where I can stand up and preach what I feel in my heart is the truth straight out of God's word. In many countries, I couldn't do that. They're persecuted all over the world for doing what I just did. And God, I know that they're in the hearts of people here. I would be naive to think that someone did not uh, reject, perhaps, what was said today. But Lord, I pray that you would open up their heart and God, I pray that they would know this. Uh, I was trying not to be partisan, but just being truthful from God's word. And God, I pray that you would minister to their heart. I pray for those that receive Christ this morning as well. And God, we would be able to help them grow in, in their faith in Christ. I pray for the offering, that you would bless it, God, because we know that what we're doing here makes a difference. And it needs to make more of a difference, more of a difference for you. In Jesus' name, amen.